Thank you for listening to the weekly message from Trinity of Fairview. Here's Pastor Stacy Harris. Got a copy of the Word. Open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 today. Last week we kicked off this series and this thought. I'm going to be in this chapter for a little while. We kicked off this thought called, How's Your Love Life? How's your love life today? How are, how are you doing in this realm of what I call agape love? What a passage we have to consider this thought under, 1 Corinthians 13. Hornack, one writer, said this, This is the greatest, strongest, deepest thing that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Now that's saying something. He said, man, this is the greatest, deepest, this is the strongest thing that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And it would be very difficult, my friend, to propose a plausible argument to the contrary. In other words, I think he's right. I think I'd have to agree with him. In the country vernacular, you'd have to say, yep, I believe this is the best that Paul ever did under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. What a passage. What a subject. The subject of the love of God. Not eros, not really phileo, not even hesed, but agape, the best and the broadest concept of love that we can come up with. Last week, in the way of introduction, we talked about this agape love and its excellency. Paul said in 1231, let me show you a more excellent way. And there's nothing to be compared with the way of love. He says it's better by far than any other way of living. Paul calls it the more excellent way, the agape way. It's derived, if you will, from the heart of God. It's demonstrated clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what agape love looks like, look at the cross of, of Jesus Christ, and there you will see the love of God manifest toward us. It was directed toward an unlovable, unworthy object in mankind. It makes me thankful when the choir sings those old songs. Grace, grace, man, how thankful I am that God's love was directed toward an unlovable and an unworthy object just like me. It was distributed in the heart by the Holy Spirit of the living God. The Holy Ghost, when He comes into your life, sheds abroad the love of God in your heart and in your life. And it's demonstrated, beloved, in the changed life of the Christian. Doesn't, doesn't the Word tell us that we'll even know that we are saved based on the fact that we have this agape love one for another? That's how I know that I even belong to the Lord. And it's how the world really ought to know that we belong to the Lord is by the love that we have one for another, the agape love of God. It is most surely, beloved, the more excellent way today. I want to talk about not, not so much about love's excellency. I want to move to this thought. I want to talk to you today about what I call love's essentiality. Love's essentiality. And I want you to note as I read verses 1, 2, and 3 that he uses the word though a lot, some five times in these three verses. It would be well translated if, and it points us to the hypothetical possibility of a situation occurring. He's saying, man, it might be that a guy could speak with the tongues of men and angels. It might be that somebody could give their body to be burned. So we're talking about things that he's saying, these really could happen in life. He says, though, or if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not charity or love or agape, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. 
And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I'm highlighting that little three-letter word, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and I have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and I have not love, it profits me, and let's say that last word together, nothing. Love's essentiality. Love is essential. The word essential means this. It means a must-have. It means it's indispensable. It means it's absolutely necessary. It carries with it the idea, if you don't have this, the rest is worthless. Now, I think about how I grew up through my life, and you know, we can almost hallmark periods of our life by television shows. Some of them hang with us through time. If I go a long way back, still, even today, one of my favorite shows is the, is the Andy Griffith Show. How many of y'all ever watched the Andy Griffith? I just love that show, man. So many great characters on there. You got Opie, you got Ain't B, you got Otis, the town drunk. I mean, uh, you got it all, man. You got wisdom, you got understanding, you got funny, you got everything. But there's one guy on there. Man, if you didn't have him, what would that show be? Who is it? Barney Five. Let me tell you, Andy Griffith is great in and of itself. But, beloved, without Barney, something very hollow about the Andy Griffith show. Those later episodes, they were good. I still watch them, but when one comes on and in color, and I know Barney isn't a part of it, there's something in my heart that just goes, man, I, I wish it'd show one that Barney was in. He makes the show without him. The show's really kind of hollow. If you move on up to the, to the 70s, when I was a young man, there was a show called uh, the Dukes of Hazard. I used to pretend I was Bo Duke on my little go-kart flying around Dye Leaf Hollow up there sliding in and, and jumping off out running Roscoe. So many wonderful characters on that show. Bo, Luke, Uncle Jesse. And don't pretend you don't remember Daisy, a big part of the show. I mean, everybody remembers Daisy. But there's one part of that show that if they didn't have it, that show wouldn't be very much. What, who is it? It's actually not a person. It's a car. When you think of the Dukes of Hazard, you think uh, of a dog. Dodge Charger Orange with a rebel flag painted on the top named what? General Lee. Without him, man, forget that show. It's somehow, could you imagine Bo and Luke somehow driving around in a gremlin? I mean, can y'all can y'all imagine that? I mean, without the general, gosh, it'd be an awful holler show to watch. And come on up even into our modern day episodes and TV. There's a show that's been very popular lately. It's called Duck Dynasty. How many of y'all would admit you ever watched Duck Dynasty? I mean, it's been, a, it's been a nationwide phenomenon. They tell me that in Hollywood, camo now is the new black because of that show. That's what they say. They've had that influence wide and far. Great show. You got Willie. You got Jace. You got all these wonderful people. Man, Phil, who would do without Phil? But there's one person. Who is it? On that show that if he wasn't on there, man, it'd be hollow to say the least. And who is it? Uncle Si. Without Uncle Si, man, you really don't even have a show. You go to all these things and you look at it and you say, wow, without that, man, it's just, it's very hollow. Well, the context of this chapter, beloved, is what I call the Corinthian show. They had a real show there at Corinth in the church. Man, they could put on a show for you. 
You'd come in, no doubt they had the polished worship, the ecstatic worship. No doubt they had the prayer languages, obviously. They had the tongues flowing. And they were, they were proud of the gifts that they had in the Spirit. And man, it was their heart's desire to put on the best show that they possibly could. But Paul looks at them and he says this, Beloved, you lack something. Do all that. Yes, do it all. But I'm going to tell you, you do it without love and it's absolutely nothing. It's nothing. Put on the best show you can. Polish it up. And Paul is saying to us in our context today, live the Christian life, my friend. Live it with eloquence. Live it with education. Live it with giftedness. Live it with goodness. Live it with selflessness. Live it sacrificially. But beloved, if you do it without love, forget it. It means absolutely nothing. I wrote down two thoughts. Call it what you want. Call it a gift. Call it good. Call it God-given. Call it God-pleasing. And call it Christian even, my friend. But if it doesn't proceed from, and if it isn't done in agape love, it's absolutely nothing. It's a zero. Do it to the very best of your ability. Yea, to the highest degree even possible. The word all occurs four times in these three verses. And Paul is saying by that word all, it means this. It means do it in the finest, highest, most quality way, in the most complete way imaginable. He says do it all. Do it the best way anybody possibly could think it could be done. And you do it without love. And he said, forget it. It does not matter in the least. You've accomplished nothing. You've accomplished zero. Why? Because love is the most essential element in all of Christian life and service. I'm going to say that again. Love is the most essential element in all of Christian life and service. It is the must-have. Without it, he says a few things. He says we are nothing. He says it means nothing. He says it profits nothing. The Corinthian church thought, man, we're really something. Paul's saying, guys, you lack love. It's the one thing that makes the rest profitable and essential. He says, man, let me show you three realms. Let me explain this to you in three realms today. And I hope that we'll apply these clearly in our lives. First of all, he says it doesn't matter what I can say. It doesn't matter what I can say in verse 1 if I don't have love. He's saying it doesn't matter in the least what I say if I don't have love. Look, let's read it together again. He says, man, though I speak, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not love, I am as a sounding brass, and I'm as a tinkling cymbal. They were very proud, listen to me, of the spiritual gift of tongues in Corinth. You say, how do you know that? Well, chapter 12 talks about it. Chapter 14 chronicles for it, it for us its use, its, its place in the church, and how Paul says it ought to play a role in your life. Paul deals with it with the first thing here in this chapter of love that he ranks last on the list in chapter 12 of spiritual giftedness. Yet the Corinthians thought, man, this is the greatest thing that could ever happen. Now listen, many churches today... And many Christians today value this gift above all else in the church. They go so far as to say that you don't even have the Holy Spirit of the living God within you or on you unless you speak with an unknown tongue or an angelic or a heavenly tongue somehow. They even garner and govern the effectiveness of their worship service by the use of this gift. I had a good friend who said he had a, a charismatic brother who worked alongside him where he worked. And I'm not downing them. Hey, man, they're doing their thing. I'm just skinning out the scripture to you and what the truth of the word is. 
He said, I would come in on Monday morning, and oftentimes he'd say, well, church was terrible yesterday. And he said, I'd say, why? Why was worship so bad? And he'd say, well, nobody even spoke in tongues yesterday. Nobody. Nobody at church spoke in tongues. It was awful. And what he's governing the whole day in the house of the Lord by is just somebody get up and speak in an unknown tongue. The Corinthian church valued this above all else. And you say, careful, pastor. You're preaching to Trinity of Fairview right here. You're, you're preaching to folks. We don't speak in tongues in the worship in here, not that I know of anyway. And here we are. We don't parade it around in here, you know. We don't do that. Uh, we're doing it the right way here. Well, be careful. Listen. Look what he said in verse 1. He said, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. Man, suppose I could do both. Suppose I had that gift, that angelic, that heavenly gift to the nth degree. And suppose beyond that, I was as good as anybody could be in the worldly realm. He said, man, whether it's heavenly or earthly, suppose I'm really good at it. Now listen, don't we high, hold in high regard men, orators, don't we? Pulpiteers. Don't, don't we hold in high regard those who can speak with clarity and cogency at the drop of a hat? Don't we flock to teachers whose intellect and delivery seem somehow otherworldly to us? Don't, aren't we drawn to men who can somehow just communicate, 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 communicate so clearly and concisely into our lives? Men who can lead us down paths and propel us to heights. I wrote this down here before, unseen. They seem smooth. They seem seamless. They're inspiring. They're polished. And what do we say about them? Man, they are truly gifted in the pulpit. Don't we say that? And we value those people highly. And we flock to them. Is Paul down in those things? No, he's not. We're probably right. The reason they're doing it is because God has given them the spiritual giftedness and the ability and the calling in their lives to do it. But we've got to be careful. We get enamored by them. We get drawn to them. And, beloved, I wrote this down. We will worship them if we're not careful. And when you listen to anybody speak, you ought to ask this question above all else. Is do they have the love of God behind what they say? Do you see that everything they say is driven by the love of an almighty God? Can they speak with tongues of angels? Maybe so. Can they speak with tongues of, of men? Maybe so. Maybe they're the best speaker you ever heard. But if they don't have love, Paul says, it's nothing but a bunch of noise. He said it's just like a, a sounding brass or a gong or a, or a tinkling cymbal. Nothing but a bunch of noise without love. As eloquent as it may be, as impacting and inspiring as you might uh, gauge it to be in your life, without the love of God driving it and covering it, it is absolutely nothing but a bunch of noise. We used to uh, have a little band up in, up in Die Leaf Hollow. Oh, we didn't have real instruments to parade around with, but we had grandmother's pots and pans, man, as much as we could. We'd slip into her kitchen and steal all of her pots and, and all of her pans and all of her spoons, and, man, we'd dole those out. We'd start marching around and beating on those pots and pans, and, and I always loved to be the symbolist, man. I, I always I loved that, take a couple of granny's lids off her pots and, and kablam, 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 brother. We're having a time of our life up there in Dye Leaf Holler. We'd play 
play and play and play, and then Granny would appear in our midst, and she'd say to us, I, I tell you what she didn't say, boy, those lessons are, are really paying off, man. Y'all are, y'all are sounding good. Y'all are heading somewhere with this. Aren't you a, a gifted bunch of grand youngins, man, uh, running around here making some, some music like that? Play some more. You're relaxing me. You're soothing me, man. Just, just keep playing. No, she'd step out, and she'd say, if you don't cut that racket out, I'm going to come out there and wear every one of you out. That's what she'd say. See, what we thought was music, man, to her was noise, beloved, in the most aggravating way that you can think of. You see what Paul's saying, man, you sit back and you admire someone and you think it's beautiful. You think that it's right. You look at it and you say, how could anything be wrong? Here's a, here's a man with a silver tongue and a command of the vocabulary. Here's a man that can, can speak and, man, draw great cathedrals full of people to come and hear him. But he says, man, mark it down. If he doesn't have love, doesn't have love, nothing but noise. That's how much good it does. Man, I'd rather get somewhere. And hear a little old somebody speak. Never had heard a had an ounce of education. Never had one bit of experience. And never had any training. That was just in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll say something to you. She'll say something to you. Teacher, Bible study teacher. Are you saying it with love? Is love driving you? When you're out there sharing the gospel, is love driving it? Man, when you're debating with somebody over theology, is love driving that conversation? When you're sowing into somebody's life, are you, are you trying to correct them to show that you're right? Or are you really trying to love them? Paul says it does not matter what I can say. It doesn't matter done apart from love it's nothing but noise secondly he says it not only doesn't matter what I can say he says it doesn't matter what I can see look at verse 2 he says man man alive yeah it doesn't matter what I can say but what about what you can see he said man although I have the the gift of prophecy though I understand all mysteries there again that word all and though I have all knowledge I have complete understanding and though I have all faith lacking nothing the best kind of faith possible that's effective he's not talking about saving faith he's talking about miracle working faith so that I could remove mountains and I have not love what does it say I am nothing I'm nothing I'm going to break these few thoughts down for you. He says, man, though I have the gift of prophecy, I believe here he's talking about prophetic powers. That means knowledge somehow of God's perfect will. And somehow he reveals to people along the way what he's going to do somewhere and somehow and in, in some form or some fashion. And so I might understand even, even what God's going to do in the future in his will and be able to relay it to folks. Though I'm able to do that, he says, though I understand all mysteries, not a few of them, 
all of them. In other words, I know hidden things. I know unsearchable things. I can understand about heaven. I can understand about Christ and the relationship to his church. I can understand about salvation. Paul used to say, and he says in the scripture over and over, Behold, I show you what? A, a mystery. He's saying, I have an understanding of something that you just hadn't had yet. I, I'm privy to things. God has shown me things. I can see things about the kingdom and the work of God. Suppose I understand all the mysteries that the faith brings. Suppose I have all knowledge. Suppose I understand doctrines that are difficult to, to, to grasp. Maybe I understand all about eschatology. Maybe I understand everything there is to understand about the sovereignty of God and the Word. Maybe I understand everything about the free will of man and how it relates to that. And maybe I understand everything about the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you understand everything about any of those things, I would covet that you wait afterwards and let me talk to you just a little bit. I earnestly would. Paul's saying, but maybe I understand all these things. Not a few of them, but all of them. And look what he said. Maybe I have all faith, the ability to see by faith that which isn't yet in existence. Doesn't, doesn't the word tell us that faith is the evidence, the proof of things that we don't yet see? And he's saying, maybe I have that miraculous kind of faith that I can look and see things that aren't there yet. And man, watch them come into reality. Man, those would be an impressive group of people to be around. Man, we would hold them in high regard and hold them in high esteem. And man, people like this have to be careful because it would be really easy to begin to hold yourself in a place of high regard and of high esteem. Man, I, I envy people who can see. We've met a, a few times with an architect here at the church trying to discuss a few things, and he's brought us a, a few drawings. Now listen, I'm, I, I'm smart enough to understand what they're talking about. I'm smart enough to, to see the grids laid out, to know how big the, the rooms will be. I, I'm smart enough to understand these things. But man, they have something that I don't see. They can see what's going to come out of this. It's not just a drawing to them. I mean, they can, they can walk onto a side and say, this is how that'll look. This is where that'll be. Here'll be the elevation change. Here's how the road will have to change. Here, that's what will have to happen this way. And maybe you have that gift. If you do, I'm envious of it. And we're impressed by people who can see things. And the same in the spiritual realm. We value highly folks who can see things in the spiritual realm. It's said of some pastors and some preachers, man, they can really see into the Word of God. I love John Phillips, man, whenever I have trouble organizing a passage or whenever I say, man, there's no way you can outline that very sensibly. All you got to do is open up one of his books and it's like he's got a little golden hammer that he hits the passage with and it falls out just right before you. Why is that? Man, it's a spiritual gift. He can see the Word of the living God and some folks have those things and we begin to value them highly and we really should but Paul says this let me tell you something if you can see it all if you understand it all in other words if you have the ultimate concept if you can see it from my point of view and you lack love you're not somebody important you're not somebody high and haughty he says you're somebody who actually boils herself down to the sum of Zero. So it doesn't matter what I can say. It doesn't matter what I can see. It doesn't matter at all. Because I can say anything without love, it's noise. I can see everything, and without love, I am really nothing. It profits me zero. Thirdly, I want you to see this. Paul also says it doesn't matter what I sacrifice. It doesn't matter what I sacrifice. Look at verse 3. He says, man, 
Maybe I'll bestow all my goods to feed the poor. And maybe I'll even give my body to be burned. If I don't have love, then it profits me absolutely nothing. Now, some folks are big on cost. Some folks get very proud of what they give. And they measure their worth in the spiritual realm by the by the sacrificial giving. But give, 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 give till it's gone. And if you don't have love, it profits, it gains, it means absolutely nothing. Paul talks about two realms of sacrifice here in this little passage. First of all, he talks about possessions in verse 3. He says, though I bestow all my goods, not some of them, but everything I have. Though I run myself to destitution. I love that word bestow. It means to dole out a little at a time. That's what it means when you bestow something. It means I give it away a little bit at a time. It means that 50 million people come by and need a mouthful of food, and I give them one spoonful and send them on down the line. A mouthful at a time, little by little. And I do this not just with some of what I have, but I do this with everything I have, and I exhaust all my resources. He says this, it begins to profit you nothing. And what a picture of that it is. If I had a thousand starving people and I gave them all one mouthful of food, what would it profit them in the long run? Absolutely nothing. I want you to note when Jesus feeds a crowd full of people, he doesn't give them a little mouthful, does he? When Jesus feeds a crowd of people, the Word tells us that uh, they're full to the fullest. And man, after they're done, they can gather up 12 baskets full of the leftovers so that in case anybody like me has to go back for seconds, beloved, they're more than welcome to come and get all the more that they want. That's what happens when Jesus begins to feed people. He says, man, though I give away everything I have and everything I own, man, I can give it every bit away, a little bit at a time, and I'm going to tell you what it gains. It gains you nothing, and it gains the people around you absolutely nothing. He begins to talk of our person. He says, though I may give my very life. He says, I may give not my, my stuff, but my entire life in the highest and the worst and the most painful way possible. He says, though I offer my body even to be burned. If I haven't done it from love, it profits me absolutely nothing. Sacrifice without love means nothing. They tell me. Historians tell me that 56 men signed a document on one occasion called the Declaration of Independence. They put pen in the inkwell, quill in the inkwell, and signed the Declaration of Independence, 56 of them. That was a move based on what I believe conviction and, and love and passion. What happened to those guys, man? History tells us some, some terrible things happened to them, and not only them, but their families resulted in, in untold suffering. Of the 56 men, it says that five were captured by the British and tortured absolutely to death. Before they gave up the ghost, they were tortured into death. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons, every one of them, in the Revolutionary War. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56, they tell me, fought and died from wounds or hardship over the war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, one particular signer of the Declaration of Independence, was once a wealthy planter and a trader. He watched with his own eyes his, every ship he had sent, sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts when it was all over, 
And history tells us that he died in absolute poverty. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his own personal headquarters. Nelson stood by General George Washington and quietly ordered him to open fire on his own home where Cornwallis was holed up. The home was absolutely destroyed. Nelson subsequently died in absolute bankruptcy. They tell me that a man by the name of John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying by the British Army. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and his mill that he owned were destroyed. For over a year, they say, he lived in the forest and the caves, returning back home only to find his wife had died. His children were gone. He'd never find them again. And a week later, he himself died from absolute exhaustion. Now, I'm going to ask you, did that profit anything? I believe in a manner it did. It's because of those men that we sit here today. It's because of many more like them through the years who defended what they started that we sit here today. Why did they do it? Well, they certainly didn't go to all that trouble because they thought it was a grand idea. They didn't certainly go to all that trouble for the fame and the glory and the riches and the wealth it would bring. They did it because they had a love. A love for a way of life and a love for a country that they could see in the future. That's why they did it. And folks today, give. Give to the uttermost. But man, if you don't do it with the understanding that we belong to a country, and if you don't do it out of love for another country besides the one that we live in, if you don't do it with an eye toward all that, it profits and it gains us absolutely nothing. Sacrifice, man. Give all you are and all you have and understand that, man, you have to do it, though, from a place of love. I hear many people say, wow, I've given up. And I observe many people say, I've given up many things. I've seen people give up recognition. I've seen people give up time and sacrifice time all for the kingdom of God. I've seen many people give up position and great jobs. I went to school with a young man that was working high up in an engineering firm making well into six figures a year who left it all and went to pastor a little church of about 15 people in Tacoa, Georgia. Went from having everything, doing everything, going everywhere. Everybody loved and respected him. And as far as I know, he's still down there at that little church in Tacoa, Georgia. Man, we have people and we see people who give up everything they have monetarily. We see people who, who lose relationships. The great missionaries of time past tell of leaving wives and tell of leaving husbands and tell of leaving children only to find that they die before they ever get back home or they get back home and their family's gone by the wayside. They give up these relationships. But beloved, Paul is saying, do it. Do it to the uttermost. But if you don't do it out of love, it profits absolutely nothing. It's a waste and a zero. It doesn't matter what you can sacrifice. Paul says if you don't do it out of love, doesn't matter to what level you take it. If it's not driven and motivated by love, it results in an absolute zero on the ledger books of the, of the kingdom of God. Didn't Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say, there's going to be a whole lot of people that come to me in that day. And what are they going to say? Lord, 
Did we not? Didn't, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we, didn't we feed the Didn't we do all these wonderful things? Did, don't you remember us? Too? And he says, what? Depart from me, you workers, what? Of iniquity. I never knew you. The only relationship that exists with the Lord Jesus Christ is a relationship based on agape love. Unmerited, undeserved favor of God manifest on our behalf. Church, it doesn't matter what we do here if we don't do it out of love. It don't matter how many auditoriums we build and how many we fill over time if we don't do it out of love. It don't matter how many lessons we teach or how many times we share the gospel if we don't do it out of love. It doesn't matter how many messages I preach from this pulpit if I don't preach them from a heart of love driven by a passion for you and by a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, love, my friend. Agape love is the absolutely essential thing. We cannot do without it. The Christian life, no matter how apparently gifted, no matter how apparently effective, without love, it means absolutely nothing. I wrote this down as a matter of fact. I don't even believe you can define your life as Christian if you don't have the love of God working in and through you. I don't even believe you can call yourself that. And there are some things that we can substitute for. There's a good friend of mine that we, we go get us a, a ham and cheese omelet every now and then. Man, I, I love ham and cheese omelet. They're made with eggs, all that cheddar cheese. Man, just pour it on, sprinkle it on the top, melt it down. I just love it, man. You ever had one made out of egg beaters? Anybody in here ever had one? An omelet made out of egg beaters? Well, you can eat it, but I'm going to tell you, it's a pale substitute, beloved. It's a pale substitute. And man, we try to build churches, and we try to do ministry on pale substitutes. And we have the greatest resource and the greatest ingredient that we could possibly ever have. And that is the love, the agape love, of an almighty God. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes right where you are. I'm just going to give you just a minute and to respond. I'm going to ask Ed to come and we're going to sing a song together. And we'll yield to my brother to close us with a couple things. I'm going to close with a mathematical thought. If love is not a factor in the equation, if love is not a factor in the equation, you know what the answer always is? Zero. I'm going to close with another positive thought. If love is in the equation, it doesn't matter what else is there. It's going to be the best that it can be. It's going to be honoring to God. It's going to be glorifying to Him. It's going to be led of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be empowered. It's going to be effective. If we can begin to minister, and if we can begin to live our lives based on agape love and driven by a passion for the Lord. Maybe this morning you need to respond in some way, whatever it is. Maybe you've never known the love of God. Maybe you've never responded to Him in faith and repentance. I would tell you that today's your day. 
the love of God stands here ready to receive you. He, with open arms, would receive anyone who will come unto him. The word says time and time again, whosoever will may come. So if today you don't know him, I challenge you if the Holy Ghost has led you. Don't you hesitate. You jump out of your seat. You come down here. We have some people who would share with you the marvelous, matchless love of God that we've sang about today. And man, I believe the love of God would birth you afresh and anew into his kingdom, change your destiny, and give you purpose right here on this planet. Secondly, let me ask you this. Is love the hallmark of your life? Is it what other people see when they look at you? Is it the hallmark of your home? Is it what governs who you are and what you do behind closed doors with the people who are most precious to you? Church, is it the hallmark of this house? Is it the way we react to one another? Is it the way we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Is it agape love? Is that the hallmark of this house? Beloved, Paul's saying today, it's got to be. Because without it, nothing. We hope you've been blessed by today's message. If you'd like to find out more about Trinity of Fairview, visit us online at trinityoffairview.org or call 828-628-1188.